if we lose the differences between male and female and the goodness of marriage, we're talking about the existential end of humanity. And I'm not overstating that. It really is the end of humanity as we know it. If we lose marriage, if we lose procreation, if we lose understanding that men and women are different. Welcome to Christ Overall, a podcast dedicated to helping the church see Christ as Lord and everything else under his feet. My name is David Schrock, and today, Trent Hunter and I will sit down with Colin Smothers, Executive Director of CBMW, the Council for Biblical Manhood and Womanhood, to discuss his long form on complementarity. Yet before we get going, let me remind you that if you find the content of this podcast helpful, we would love for you to share it with others. You can do that by passing along the website, ChristOverall.com or by giving our podcast the five-star rating on the Apple Podcast Player. Rating our show that way tells the web bots that more people should be listening to the podcast. And the people behind the microphones would be encouraged as well. To be more serious, we are overjoyed with the support that we have received from Christ Overall listeners and readers, and we're thankful to God for those who have taken the time to give us feedback. And we're especially thankful for those who have taken the time to write for Christ Overall. And today, that includes Colin Smothers. Colin is a two-time graduate of Southern Seminary, He is also the executive director for CBMW, and he lives in Louisville, Kentucky with his wife and five children. And most recently, he's returned to Kenwood Baptist Church there in Louisville, where he directs the Kenwood Institute. Colin, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, David. Good to be here. Amen. And Trent, my dear friend from Greenville, South Carolina, so good to have you back as well, brother. Great to be on again. Thanks, Dave. Well, for those who don't know, Trent is the pastor preaching for Heritage Bible Church in Greer, South Carolina, just outside of Greenville. And together we'll be talking with Colin about complementarianism and why the subject is perhaps one of the most important in the church today. In fact, in Colin's long form, he begins with a quotation from the famous historian William Manchester. And so, Colin, I want to start by reading this and we'll begin our time with this quotation here. Manchester writes, the erasure of distinctions between the sexes is not only the most striking issue of our time, he's writing this in 1993, but it may be the most profound the race has ever confronted. That's a massive claim. So Colin, tell us why he says that and then why you launched your article with that quotation. You know, maybe we'll begin by talking about who it is that William Manchester is. He's the biographer of Winston Churchill wrote The Last Lion, that three-volume biography, and it spans this period of history that is just contains world-changing events. So William J- Manchester is not only a professional historian, but he's a student of history. And so in 1993, U.S. News and World Report magazine asked him to write about the changes that he had observed, especially over the last 60 years, and, and what these changes meant for human history and for his time then in 1993. It was 60 years at that point that U.S. News and World Report had been going. He's looking over that period, and this is the thing that he calls the most profound issue the race has ever confronted, and that thing being the erasure of the distinctions between the sexes. I mean, if you really just stop and think about that quotation, in that time period was World War II, in that time period was massive globalization going on, the advent of the internet. And 1993, this is before a lot of the the more radical elements of the sexual revolution sort of took root. We're talking about homosexuality, gay marriage, transgenderism. He's not talking about that. He's just simply talking about 
the profound erasure of the distinctions between the sexes, this kind of male-female interchangeability. And he says this is the most profound thing that's faced humanity. Yeah, if there's anything to be said in the last 30 years is that his view looking backwards anticipated what we have now seen, right? You mentioned just the way that changes not only include world history at that time, but some of the things that went on in the church, even women's ordination in various denominations like the Presbyterian Church USA, and certainly in other churches as well. And you make a distinction, and this will be helpful for us as I think we begin our conversation today, between some of the functional erasure of women, and that's what he seems to be getting at, Manchester does in his article, and even some of the ontological changes that are there. Maybe just to kind of tee up what this article, what you are writing about here, how have the last 30 years began to change some of the ways that men's and women's roles have kind of been impacted by this, even in the church? Well, yeah, we can start with that functional versus ontological interchange. So I think what Manchester was was observing was that sort of functional interchange that was happening in the boardroom, in the workforce, in the pulpit, in the home. So this was really the fruit of feminist ideology saying that there really is no social difference between men and women such that there should be nothing that would prohibit a woman from entering into or even occupying these these spheres that were traditionally and even more importantly theologically reserved for men. And so historians talk about these different waves of feminism, the first wave being largely concentrated about getting women the vote, something that most of us could wholeheartedly endorse. And then these successive waves, though, that pushed more into downplaying the differences, the real differences between men and women, that really underwrote the way that traditional societies were organized. So just a biological fact that women are those that can bear children and nurture young children. And that function has implications for the ways that we order our homes, the ways that we order our society the ways that we would defend society. We obviously wouldn't send women to the front lines to defend our country against an invading force because of those realities. But what happened with the feminist ideology taking root is more and more people began to downplay real natural differences between men and women and really ask the questions, well, why are women prohibited from doing this role or doing that role? Such that, as we saw, and as I mentioned in the article, this began to affect the evangelical church. So this is one of the reasons why CBMW was founded back in 1987 with the the writing of the Danvers statement. It was recognizing that this this functional interchange that was was going on in society was starting to rewrite our own theological traditions and our own theological doctrinal commitments such that there were evangelicals back in the 1970s and 1980s And I kind of go through some of this history of women's ordination. I mean, this was an issue that C.S. Lewis, when he was alive, was fighting way back in the 30s and the 40s. He was noticing this trend and he was was saying, you know, in, in his article, Priestesses in the Church, he makes the argument that when you make that fundamental change toward women's ordination, you're really changing the nature of the church because you're doing damage to the very theology of the way that the church is organized and and represents Christ in the church to the world. Anyway, so so fast forward that. So that's the functional interchange that we're talking about to this more ontological interchange. If you if you downplay the differences such that it doesn't matter if you have a woman in this role versus a, a man in this role, think about what that does to your definition of marriage. 
if there's really no difference between a man doing this role versus a woman doing this role, then why can't the woman perform the function of husband in a marriage, right? So a woman can now replace a man in a marriage and no difference, right? So there's the functional paving for the ontological difference downplay in marriage. And then interpersonally, and I think this is what we're seeing today, if there really is no fundamental difference between men and women, then there would be no difference if I called myself a woman tomorrow because there is no natural difference that I would have to erase uh, in order for that declaration to, to make sense. And I think that's exactly what we're seeing. It's really shocking when you look back at that and see where things were and where the culture was at that time. And it's interesting, you just bring up the Danvers statement at the beginning of CBMW. I mean, it's really, you know, was written and established at a time that's so different from the world in which today there's still confusion about male and female, but in a very different way. So I think that functional ontological element is different. And of course, the last 30 years with the change to something where a man can be a woman, a woman can be a man, there can be all this ontological changes that are there. And even some of the articles most recently that I've seen of just women plus, right? You know, those who are transgender women are actually able to be even better than women. So we're in Women's History Month right now, and that women are being erased at an ontological level. And it makes sense that we would have to give an account for this again from the scriptures of why these things matter, because the culture around us has changed, and some in the church have, have changed right there with it. Trent, I want to ask a question for you as you kind of hear what Colin has mentioned here and reading through his article. For you as a pastor, like, why does this matter? What is the importance of addressing these things for the local church? Well, in the first place, as a, a pastor, my job is to lead the people of God with the Word of God, and the Word of God speaks to these things. I mean, as soon as we get a page into the Bible, we have the God who has created humanity, male and female, in his image. And so we want to be a church that is an outpost of heaven, that is a reflection of God's very mind and purpose and glory. And that means I, as a preacher, have to think carefully about what's happening in the world around us. I did a little bit of math. I think I put in about 15 hours to studying various views on a particular text that is controversial in, I think, 1 Peter 3, or maybe it was 1 Timothy 2. And it turned into about three minutes in a sermon. And so they need that work because of the confusing age that we're in. But the goal is not to confuse them or to make them think that gender roles are this complicated, frustrating and embarrassing part of our life, but so that our church would rejoice in and give praise to God for what he has made and how he has made it, and then live into that and then live out of that so that we might display the glory of God to our community. So as simple as a husband and wife's interaction when they wake up and on their way to church and through church and then to home and the respect and the love and the deference and the care and the interest and all the intricacies of how that works out in their particular marriage, God's glory is seen in that. And that is downstream from the preaching of the word. And it is the word that changes the people of God. So I care about these things because I care about my people. And the most important thing I can do in caring for my people is to bring carry to them the word of God clearly taught in context so that they might know what he has actually said to them and for them in their age. Well, that's well said. Colin, as you begin your article, you're certainly looking as well at the Word of God. But I thought it was interesting that before you even get there and kind of lay out the three things that you're going to do, you kind of pause a second to say, you know, here are what my motivations are. 
right? I'm just wondering, as you have worked for CBMW, why is it necessary that we would have to kind of make clear what your motivations are? Yeah, because I think the decks are so stacked against us. Here we are in the position of just restating. I mean, think about this. All we're trying to do is restate what the church has always believed about these things until about five seconds ago. And, and really, uh, and I'm just talking about that the Western church has changed, that the global church has not changed on these things. So all Christians throughout time and history, the vast majority of Christians throughout time and history have held to functionally a, a complementarian position. Obviously, they didn't use that word. Complementarian was a term that was coined by CBMW back in 1987 to try to explain this position that sums up men's and women's roles in the home and the church, which really was just a restatement of what the church had always believed about these things. But we are in the position of having to restate these things to a church and a world that is catechized in exactly the opposite thing every single day. We're catechized by a culture that tells us men and women, there is no difference. Uh, Those that would say that men are different than women are probably misogynists, uh, probably hate women probably are abusers. I mean, how often has that label abuse been put around the necks of those that would defend just a a simple statement like what Paul plainly says in 1 Timothy 2.12, I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. So the reason why I want to make clear my motivations is because I want people to understand that what I want other people to care about is the truth. And where I see the truth and where we know the truth to be is in the word of God. And I think I I appreciate what Trent said there, that this really is a conversation about the authority of the Word of God and how that authority functions in our churches. I want people to be able to come to their Bibles, to be able to read the plain statements in the Bibles that are, are very clear, very straightforward, and not have to do these hermeneutical gymnastics to try to figure out why what Paul says really doesn't mean what it seems that Paul says. I want people to be able to see and have confidence when they approach the Word of God that it is good, that it is true, it's relevant for my life and also for the lives of those around me. So I want people to be very clear on my motivations that I'm motivated by the truth and that truth grounded in the Word of God. But I'm also, I I really am convinced, as I say in the article, that that complementarianism, and you don't even have to use that label. However, you're going to summarize the Bible's teaching Uh, which upholds and affirms what we see in nature about the differences between men and women, and these differences make a difference in the way we live, that that teaching really is the last best hope for civilization. What we see here, if Manchester's right, and I think he is, that the erasure of the distinctions between the sexes is the greatest issue facing the human race ever, then this is massively important that we get this right. And I believe the Bible has an answer to this, and it has the best answer to it, that men and women are equal. That's a part that's missing in a lot of corners of the world, that men and women are equal yet different. If we lose the differences between male and female and the goodness of marriage, we're talking about the existential end of humanity. And I'm not overstating that. It really is the end of humanity as we know it if we lose marriage, if we lose procreation if we lose understanding that men and women are different. Well, I think that's really well said because you think about how confused people are. Trent, you took 15 hours to kind of come up with three minutes worth of a sermon, 
right? I mean, those who may not be a pastor realize, how, how long does it take to, to do a sermon? Well, usually 15 hours is for the whole thing. It was a unique text. It, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but it's, it's not because the text is confusing. It's because the issue in our day is confusing. Yeah. And so to make sure that we have great clarity with a sharp, precise reading and interpretation of scripture, it takes that extra time that is there. And I think that, you know, to Colin's point, just thinking about, you know, are we overblowing this reality? I think not, because we certainly see even the technology that is being brought forward today where you're seeing videos now basically of human trafficking where so-called gay marriage, that couple, is looking at the 12 embryos that have just been created for them and they're harvesting life. And it's, you know, this is what is happening here because we have lost the foundational principles that were set forth in creation. Not only that, I mean, I don't know if your Twitter feed is filled with the same images that, that mine is, but <laughs> looking at the perversity around Drag Queen Story Hour, that's a downplaying and a, and a confusion of the difference between male and female. There's the issue of transgender surgeries going on in minors where they're taking healthy biology and refashioning it to try to conform to this fiction that's driven by a fallen mind and a confused mind. And it literally is ruining people's lives. It's sterilizing young people so they will not ever be able to have children, the next generation. And it is confusing so many boys and girls and men and women out there. And all we want to be doing is restating God's timeless truth that men and women are equal yet different, and it's good. Yeah, Colin, I think one of the things I appreciate of what you have done is certainly not in this article, but in others, showing the ways in which this ontological confusion, this ontological erasure of men and women is not just related to roles in the church, but has you know deep-seated impact throughout culture. We're seeing that, as you just said. But I think what we need to do is just to go back to what does scripture say, right? And that's what you do in your article here is you look at the male-female complementarity. And I appreciate your article because it's not just arguing for complementarianism. It's not an ism that's being defended, but the undeniable reality that there is a complementarity of male and female in scripture. And that's where you begin in creation, looking even before the fall and then how that relates to the world around us. So let's just go back to the beginning. What does someone, when they open the word of God in Genesis, what do they need to see? What do they need to know to begin to have a foundation of a biblical worldview with relationship to men and women? Yeah. So you open your Bibles and you encounter the first word to scripture in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's a, a theological statement that says that not only does God predate all creation, not only is he superior to and sovereign over all creation, but because of that, because he is the creator of all things, he is the one who determines not only what is, but what it is that that thing means or that creation means. So if you look in Genesis 1, you have the six days of creation. And on the sixth day, it says very clearly that God created humanity, male and female, in his image in Genesis 1, 26 and 27. And as I say in the article, I think there's an emphasis in Genesis 1 on equality, male-female equality, if we're talking about kind of generalities here, and then an emphasis in Genesis 2, on male-female difference, although you see equality and difference throughout the, the two chapters. And so there, uh, in Genesis 1.27, we see male and female created in the image of God. I am convinced that the imago dei, the, the doctrine of the image of God, is the fundamental truth that grounds universal human dignity, male and female. You lose that truth, 
and you go into all kinds of wonky and pernicious categories of heresies, really, and talk about misogyny, talk about really misanthropy, hating humanity, you can do all kinds of things to human beings that you do not believe are created in the image of God equal to me, bearing the same dignity and worth as me. And we want to wholeheartedly affirm that men and women both bear the divine image. And yet, God creates them, humanity, male and female, two different genres. The Adam comes in male, the Adam comes in female. Even there in Genesis 1, 26 to 27, we see sort of that Adamic headship being established where both of them, the male and the female, are named Adam, which is the name of the first man. And then they're given this, this dignified command to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, which is you can only be fruitful and multiply through the procreative act in the covenant of marriage, which takes a male-female difference that's baked into God's design. And so even from the very first chapters, we see this divinely ordained equality and difference between male and female. And then what we see in Genesis 2 is the same truth echoed again. So God creates the man first, which is a, a very key part of God's revelation for how he set up the world. And then he creates the woman second. This is not just minutia in the text. This is something that the later biblical authors pick up on, and they they realize there's theological significance to the way that God created the world. If you think about it, God could have created the world any way that he wanted, right? He could have made Adam and Eve at the exact same time with no differences at all to speak of, no bodily differences no differences in in when they arrived on the scene in, in the creation account, no differences in where they came from, right? Adam is created from the, the ground, the Adamah, and Eve is created from the side of Adam, out of his, his rib, built into who she is. So all of those things, the biblical authors realize, give us theological meaning as to what it means to be a man and a woman. So I would just say, readers of the scriptures. Just pay attention to the beautiful text that we have in front of us, Genesis 1 and 2. So some who would, maybe they would call themselves egalitarian or they wouldn't identify themselves with a, a biblical complementarian position might come back and say that, yes, all of that is true, but then this idea of authority and submission is something that was put in place in the fall, not in creation. Christ comes to redeem humanity. And when he does that, you know, male and female are all one in Christ now, something like a Galatians 3.28 as a key verse for that. Colin, how do we know that it was God's good intention? What do we see in the creation account to say that the roles that are here, this authority and submission is not something that is caused by the fall, but comes even before the fall? Yeah. So one of the things that I said is from Genesis 1 at, at the beginning, God creates man, male and female in his image. So mankind is named Adam, which again becomes the the name of the first man. So there's sort of this headship principle that, that isn't explicit, but is, is, it is implicit in the text of Genesis 1. Then you go into Genesis 2 and you see that the man is created first. And again, just like I said, there's a there's a theological principle there of being the first overall creation. There's a Adamic headship being testified to there in Genesis chapter two. And then you read why, the motivation for why God creates Eve. 
It's to create Adam a helper suitable, a helper that is fit for him. And what we see there is God does this sort of zoo-like animal parade before he creates Eve, right? So he he brings all the animals two by two in front of him. So the, here come the lions, the male and the female lion. Here come the giraffes, the male and female giraffes. Here come the rhinoceros, the male and female rhinoceroses. And you get into Adam's head and you realize, wait a second, each one of these pairs of creation come in a male and a female genre, but none of them correspond to how I am. So the lioness matches the lion and they correspond. They're fit for one another. They complement one another. Where's my complement in all of creation? And that's the moment that God puts Adam to sleep and he pulls the rib from his side and he builds Eve into this helper suitable. And then he brings her to him. And what happens then? Right after Adam has named all of the animals, right after God has named all of creation in Genesis 1, Adam names Eve, the woman. She shall be called woman. And so that right there is a function of authority. It's not spelled out as a, a theological axiom or a, a doctrine. It's illustrated in the way that God creates the world, in the way that God orchestrated for the world to unfold. So God gives Adam this authority over his his wife, Eve, to name her. And then she comes to him, and we have this great first poem in the scriptures where he says, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, she is like me, she corresponds to me, and so she shall be called woman. So I think those two components right there, they illustrate Adamic headship, they illustrate headship of a, of a husband over his wife, and then we see that affirmed all the way throughout scripture. And I know we'll probably get into Genesis chapter three. I didn't in my article, but what you see in Genesis chapter three, when sin enters the world, is that relationship becoming difficult because of the curse. So Adam's work with the ground is is cursed, which is interesting because where does Adam come from? He comes from the ground. He's made from the ground. So this vocational calling is is made more difficult because of the curse. And then what is it that's cursed for the woman? It's it's her labor and childbearing. And then even her relationship with her husband. Again, where does the woman come from? She comes from the side of, of man. So th- this sort of origins thing, this theme points to a sort of a vocational theme a little bit, I think, theologically speaking. But those curses do not introduce headship. If anything, they make the headship principle more difficult so that when you get to Ephesians 5, which is so important for for everybody to see, I think, when you get to Ephesians 5 and Paul is talking to the covenant community, talking to the church, what does he tell the church? He tells husbands to love their wives, not to domineer over them, to love their wives as Christ loves the church, answering the curse, Genesis 3, not answering Genesis 1 and 2, answering Genesis 3 to get back, to roll back the curse back into God's original design. And then what does he tell the wives? He tells them to submit to their husbands, not some sort of rewrite of Genesis 1 and 2, but answering the curse in Genesis chapter 3. So sort of rolling back the curse that was played out that made that marriage relationship more difficult. So many things there that we can kind of pick up and need to pick up to kind of build into an understanding of these things. And certainly the way that Genesis 3 is not introducing these distinctions, but really it's exacerbating and even bringing a curse upon differences that are already there in the creation. Trent, as you're thinking about discipling uh, a couple, as you're thinking about discipling a young man, as you're just thinking about through these things, what are some other things in the Old Testament that would be helpful 
to know, to be able to see how manhood and womanhood are related, whether it's in Genesis 1, 2, or 3, or something that develops from that on the way to the New Testament? Well, it's actually a New Testament text that calls to mind an Old Testament relationship. So you think of 1 Peter 3, 1 through 7, and Peter is writing to New Testament Christians, New Testament church, and to different hearers and readers in different circumstances in which they are called to submit. And one of the circumstances, which can be a legitimate hardship, especially where a woman would be married to an unbelieving man, would be that of a wife to a husband. And so Peter writes, likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. And this is a really wonderful prospect that a woman gets to be, the wife gets to be a part of her husband's salvation. It's not an invitation to trouble. It's an invitation to God's work to save. And he speaks about her pure and respectful conduct, speaks to her adorning, not external, the braiding of hair. You want to look good? Look good to God. And in looking good to God, you'll be attractive. There will be something that he can't put his finger on, but it is beautiful, attractive, and right that even draws him into salvation, apparently. For this is how the holy woman of God hoped in God. So here is our New Testament author using his Old Testament to encourage his readers with hope. How the holy woman of God hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands. And here we go. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children. How encouraging is that? If you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Now, sometimes a woman finds herself in a relationship. Any marriage can be frightening to some extent. We're living with a sinner. We're in very close quarters. You're with them when they're in their worst mood. This passage, I don't think, addresses you know every possible scenario or every worst nightmare scenario. It's the general course of things in marriage, and she would have a possibility of being fearful and living and being in her marriage, working out from that fear. But in this case, she is to live out from her admiration of and following of Sarah's very example. And so as we look to some Old Testament marriages, it's not that every marriage in the Old Testament is going to be a model for us, but that even in Abraham and Sarah's marriage, a husband and a wife, imperfect as it was in so many ways, we nevertheless have God's pattern of marriage working itself out. And, you know, zooming way out like the author of Hebrews will do in chapter 11 and commend various characters for their faith, even though they were without faith at times, so too we can look back and with broad brushes, we can pick up what God was putting down in creation that manifests itself. And it's best at their best in these marriages, even Abraham and Sarah's. Well, that's interesting. I mean, because I can hear that what you just said there, someone who had not listened to you charitably would say, oh, you're saying that if someone's in a frightening situation, if someone's in an abusive situation, that they should stay in that situation. And that's not what you're saying, right? I mean, I think that's the way that sometimes complementarians have been mislabeled or, you know, even misused the language that is there. And what you're saying there is that when we look at men's and women's roles throughout the entirety of the Bible, you have an illustration here with Sarah who is submitting herself to her husband. She is commended for that in a way that would be reflective of Adam and Eve in the beginning, not without you know absence of sin, not perfectly perhaps, but with faith that is there. And what I find interesting, and Colin, you might be able to correct me here, 
But it seems as though this example is not one of the ones that those who are writing for a more egalitarian position would have. They would point to a passage like this, or they would excuse this passage and look to something like a Deborah, or to look to something like a Ruth, and to read the book of Ruth as a woman who is taking the initiative and taking the leadership role that is there. Are there places where this role of Sarah and Abraham is commended by those who would be in opposition uh, to complementarity? If it's out there, I haven't I haven't seen it. This doesn't seem to be a text that shows up in the bestsellers that are kind of that cottage industry of of attacking complementarian evangelicalism. And and I think there's a reason why. And I like that Trent went to to a household definition of complementarianism because I think there's a I think that's actually the biblical logic. Here's what I mean by that. So the family is a pre political institution. What we mean by that is the family not only predates politics, uh, the state, but it also is, it, it comes before the state in our theological logic. And we should also say the family is a pre-ecclesial institution. In fact, much of our ecclesiology trades in familial language, right? Brother and sister and father and mother. And there's a reason for that. God, in the very beginning, in Genesis 1 and 2, what does he create? He creates a man and a woman who become married, who form a family, then they have children. And it's only after, when sin is introduced into the world, that you have the need for redemption and, and, and really the founding of the church on, on Christ, the, the Savior. But the family is the foundational institute for how we understand everything. And, and here's what I mean by that. This principle of male headship, the fact that a husband is called to lead his household, lead his wife and his children, that should never be undermined, and you don't see it undermined in the clear commands from Scripture, in the church. And this is the logic, I think, that we see Paul especially employing in places like 1 Timothy 2, in places like 1 Corinthians 11. If you look at how Paul argues— He's talking about something that's happening in the church, right? I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. Why? For Adam was created first and then Eve. Well, Adam and Eve, we're not talking about a church relationship there. What are we talking about there? We're talking about the headship of the home right there, the headship of the the family. And so what Paul seems to be saying here is you cannot undermine the creational order in how you structure your ecclesial institutions, your, your ecclesial body. And the same thing I think happens in 1 Corinthians 11 when, again, Paul is appealing to this logic of creation. He's saying the man was created first and the woman from man and for man. There we're talking about how God created Adam and Eve and then brought them together in this covenant of marriage. And he's saying that the covenant community should never undermine male headship. It should actually affirm male headship. So you don't have the position where, where you have a husband coming to church and having to submit to his wife, who is maybe the pastor or the preacher or, or whatever it is that day. So there's the covenant community, the church community should affirm the creational reality of the family and not undermine it. I think that's a really important thing that you see, not only undergirding how the Old Testament is set up, Levitical priesthood, all male, Jesus chooses 12 disciples, because he is not doing damage to the covenant community and those clear commands that a husband 
is the head of his wife. That's what Paul says very clearly. It's not the husband should be the head of his wife, right? He doesn't command husbands, be the head of your wife, husbands. He says, no, the husband is the head. That's something that egalitarians will never escape. No matter how many books you write, no matter how many blogs you post, no matter how many podcasts are recorded, that creational reality will never be erased or effaced. Trent, you look like some light bulbs were going off as uh, Colin was speaking there. What comes to mind as you hear him say that? Well, Colin, I've got 1 Timothy 2 right in front of me here, thinking with the church in the foreground and the command concerning men teaching, women listening, and a little, few little notes on what that means and doesn't mean. And the ground for Adam was formed first. I've thought about the connection, how there's a pre-fall ground, but I haven't thought of the family as a pre-ecclesial institution that the church is not to undermine. And that thought experiment of a husband showing up to be under the authority of his wife, that makes perfect sense that these things would click together like Legos. They fit together. One comes before the other. And that's sitting right there in that text. I hadn't seen it in quite that way. Thank you. Well, and I think the analogy that's brought out there between the family and the household of God is so important, right? Especially in our day where the family has been eviscerated, right? And people don't know what a healthy family looks like. In fact, they want to live their lives as entirely as individuals because they haven't seen a good mother and a father. They haven't seen a good sibling relationship. They haven't seen those things. And certainly all that they see on television is not going to be encouraging that as well. And so it seems to me that it's so important that the church would maintain the structure of what that household is meant to be so that one, it can model what that looks like. Two, it can instruct the people who will be having families because the family is God's intention. Be fruitful and multiply continues to be part of that pre-ecclesial, pre-political foundation in the family. But if the family is going to be returned to what God's intentions are, the church has the role of teaching that, instructing that. And that's why the household of God, right in that passage of 1 Timothy 2 and 3, it's so important to the structures, right, with qualified men, not just men over women. It's not saying that at all, but that godly qualified elders who are male would then be leading in the household of God to model then what it looks like for a man with his wife to be able to lead in the home. And that there is an analogy that goes back and forth between the two. Absolutely. In fact, if you understand that logic, you understand why a pastor, someone who's going to be biblically qualified for eldership, for pastoral ministry, what's one of the main evidences for faithfulness? It's his household. If he can't lead and order well his own household, if he's not a loving husband and a, and a loving father, I'm not saying that every pastor has to be married, but but this is the the normal way of things then that disordering in the home is going to bring disorder into the church. And that's exactly what you see the reverse of when you have disordered churches with women being ordained to the pastoral ministry, with women preaching in the pulpits, that disordering is going to be affecting every single one of those homes that are under that kind of teaching. That's good. And I think 
You know, something that I read that Jonathan Lehman was talking about as well, when we get back to the issues of authority and submission, he makes the point or kind of a, a distinction between authority of command and authority of counsel. And I think this is helpful as we think about the different roles or the different tools, if you will, that are given to the state, given to the home, given to the church. The state has the sword to exercise authority. Then there's a discipline and even a punishment that can come there. There is the rod that is given to the home where a father or mother is able to discipline the child and there's discipline that is there. And there are the keys of the kingdom that are given to the local church and there's discipline that is there as well. And those keys are not given to the elders, they're given to the entire church. And when we think about the home, the husband doesn't have a tool, if you will, to discipline his wife. The way that he has authority is through counsel, is through teaching, is through caring instruction along the way that is give and take where there is conversation that is there and not the same sort of authority as in other places. And so I think when we think about authority and submission in the church, we need to define carefully what that is and even what it is not. I thought Lehman's work on that, one of the other articles that he wrote for Nine Marks a while back, was really helpful on that part. Yeah, I think that's really good. And Lehman gives us some helpful categories. But I think we just step back and say, we're in a culture and a time period where any talk of authority is suspect. So authority itself is abusive, right? And that is just not the way that the Bible talks about these things. The Bible affirms the goodness of a civil magistrate, for instance. And uh, if a king is good, it's a good thing. It's a blessing to everyone under that king's authority. If a husband's authority is is well-wielded, that house is going to flourish. A church under godly authority is a church that is blessed. And we shouldn't shy away from the word authority or even the word submission. We are all men and women under authority. I myself am a member of a church with pastors and elders that I am called to submit to. It's not as if only women are called to submit in the Bible, right? We're all called to submit to our our elders in the covenant community, submit to the civil magistrate in realms that are are appropriate. So I think that that's one of the things that that I would counsel is don't let the culture take away the word authority as sort of something that you have to shy away from, you have to get rid of because it's saddled with this language of abuse. That's just not not at all the case. Well, and that, that takes us back to the scripture itself, doesn't it? Right, where we have to say that our authority is what the word of God said. And so going back to even the beginning point of just what is your motivation is because there's a motivation for the truth and there's a submission to the authority and the authority is not vested in a man unless that man's name is Jesus Christ, right? And so the, the word is where the authority is. And so even as we think about these things, to teach something with authority is not based upon my experience. It's not based on my experience as a man. It's not that we need to have a collective experience of, of different things. And the person who has sexual abuse, therefore, they are able to speak with kind of a certain authority given to them because of that experience. But rather, it goes back to, to the Word of God. And certainly, that's what the orders the church. And, you know, with our time kind of running to a close, Con, I'm just wondering, you know, in your article, you make the point that what is taught in the Word of God is fitting with the world around us. What are you getting at there? I mean, it's not quite a natural law argument, but it's just recognizing that there's a givenness in the world and that the word as it goes out into the world is going to fit there in a way that is greater than anything that is, again, would be a different reading, a different understanding. Help us to understand that as we kind of bring this to a close. 
Yeah. So I, I'm appreciative of a lot of natural law arguments, although I think that the way I would I would counsel and the way that I would suggest us argue is in an increasingly postmodern age, we we want to continue to stake our positions out on the undiluted word of God. So I want to start there and I want to say what the word of God says is true and good and beautiful. And that is going to be the best way, not only for me to understand who I am, not only for me to understand who God is, but also the way the world is. But then when we go out in the world, what we see is that God's word is good and fitted for the world that he made. And we shouldn't be surprised by this, right? God wrote the Bible. It's inspired by the Holy Spirit. The word of God, the Bible is God's word. And also God made the world. God is the is the author of both scripture and nature or the world, the word and the world. And so when we see commands like, you know, wives submit to your husbands or husband is the is the head of the the wife or qualified men are called to lead in the church and we see that there's some natural tendencies and giftedness with men that would allow them to be good leaders, that would allow them to do that well in a way that is fitting with their own nature, then we shouldn't be sitting there scratching our heads and thinking, wow, what a coincidence. We should realize that God made the world, right? He he made men the way that he made men and then commands men to be the way that he wants them to be. And those are not at odds. In fact, He's the one that designed it. The best way to figure out how an engine should work or how some tool that you buy at the store is supposed to operate, you go and read the owner's manual. That's how you figure out how this, this thing is supposed to operate. It's the same thing with us. It's the same thing with the world. So when we see commands in the word of God, when we see illustrations of the word of God, and we see those playing out in the world, we should not be surprised when we realize it matches up with what we might call common sense or or natural observances or science. And I mean science in, in the true sense of that world, knowledge, confirmed knowledge, what we would call wisdom, what we see in the Proverbs. Brother, I think that's a well-said way to put this at the end. All right, as we just think about the challenges that are in our culture, there's a lot of complexity there. When we come back to the Word of God, it's it's not complex. If we allow the Word of God to speak in the way that it speaks, to listen to what it says, then it makes a lot of sense, a lot of crazy and confused things in our world. And well, that's certainly what we need going forward. Amen. Well, Trent and Colin, thank you guys for, for coming and, and talking to us today about these important things. Thank you, brother. Thanks for having us, Dave. And friends, thank you for listening to Christ Overall today. If this discussion on the nature of men and women in the Bible and the world has provoked your interest, I'd encourage you to listen to or read Colin's long form on complementarity. All month we'll be discussing this subject and there are important pieces coming from Andy Nacelli and Abigail Dodds and Jonathan Lehman. Stay tuned. Additionally, if you want to keep up with Christ Overall, we encourage you to sign up for our newsletter. You can do that at ChristOverall.com. And finally, if you want to support the work of Christ Overall, you can also give to this ministry online. Indeed, as we sign off, may we remember this, that Christ is Lord over all. And so in all things, let us exalt Christ.